Welcome to the Love Reaching Community's Sermon of the Week. For more information pertaining to the life of the church, please visit our website at lrcchurch.co.za. Good evening. It's really good to be back here again. Thanks for having me back, Johan and the eldership team. And uh, when you guys had your tornado and all the hectic rain, I actually found Johan that afternoon and he, we were on the phone. And he said, hey, things are bad here, big storm coming. And when I saw the aftermath on the news and some of the pictures the next day, I thought, thank God I don't live in Gauteng. <laughs> a little known fact about my life is that I spent three years of my childhood in Springs. And during one of the... That's <laughs> why so it's a little known fact. <clears throat> and at one point, my dad was hospitalized. And uh, he had some surgery. I can't remember what exactly it was. And a massive hailstorm blew in, knocked out all the windows on one side of the hospital, including his ward. He had to be moved into another ward. So he always spoke with real um, respect for the half-felt storm. So we were so, I was glad. Just like, hey, <laughs> sorry for the guys in Joburg, but it's great weather here in Hillcrest. The very next Tuesday, we had <laughs> just a hurricane blow in through Durban. Um, thank, uh, where we lived, it wasn't too bad, but down in the center of Durban, horrendous damage. So I don't know what's up with the weather, but uh, we certainly don't feel like there's a drought in Durban anymore with all that torrential rain that came down. And I have to say, this again, just uh, totally by the way, no, um, not even the start to my message. Last time I was here, I stayed with Heath and Tabs, and Ben and I struck up a good friendship, their boy. He made my probably decade, actually. I don't think somebody has been that excited to see me <laughs> in the last 10 years that I can remember. He, he ran in when he saw me. He gave me a big hug, looked at me, gave me another big hug, and then he jumped up and down with excitement that I'd come back. I, if this trip was just for that moment for me, my, my buckets are filled. So thank you for having such a beautiful boy. <laughs> He's out there somewhere. <laughs> I'd like to read a story from the book of Acts tonight, but this is the question I'd like to ask you. Do you ever feel stuck? Or have you ever felt stuck? We're going to read a story about being stuck this evening. We um, are busy, we're just coming to the end of a series through the book of Philippians that we're doing uh, in our church at the moment. And Philippians is obviously the letter written by Paul to this church in Philippi. And so when we were approaching the series, I went and looked at how this church started. And the story is told in Acts chapter 16. And so we did a little bit of a precursor to our Philippians series with the story in Acts 16. And I just want to give credit up front. Last year, July, I was at a conference in Australia. And I heard Stephen Furtick preach on this passage which I was reminded about when I went and researched it again. So I've borrowed one or two things from him, and I don't think I'll ever get to meet him face-to-face, but if he ever listens to this message online, thank you very much, Stephen Furtick, for some of your ideas. Acts chapter 16, verse 22 to 26. The notes are coming up on the screen. Or if you've got a Bible, you might like to follow along with me. Grant. Brilliant. Thanks, Trevor. So we pick up the story in the middle here. It says, the crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, 
and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. I want you to remember that phrase, please. Jailer was, uh, jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. I don't know what kind of flight risk these two preachers posed, but the magistrate ordered, these, ordered this jailer, you guard these two guys, Paul and Silas, carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open, and everyone's chains came loose. We backtrack to the start of the story. If you haven't ever read it, or uh, maybe haven't read it for a little while, Paul and Silas, together with some of their buddies, were on a trip into different cities planting churches. And God had very clearly guided them to go to Philippi. Previously, they were across the little bit of sea on the other side. And uh, this was the first time that we read of that they'd been into Europe as they crossed into the continent of Europe where uh, this province was in the city, Philippi. And when they arrived in Philippi, at first things went really well. They met a prominent lady, the Bible tells us, whose name was Lydia. And her and her household got baptized. And she was so taken with uh, her newfound faith in Christ that she insisted that this team of church planters come and stay at her house. And when, I'm, when I, uh, my understanding of this, it would have been quite a large place if she was a prominent lady in the city. And they continued to work in Philippi, Paul and Silas. They went out every day with their team and uh, they spread the gospel of Christ. So things really were going well. They found some traction. But then something happened. And it was quite interesting because there was the slave girl there. And how many of you know slavery at any point is a bad thing? And this girl was kept captive, but she had unique, a unique ability. She was able to predict people's futures, to tell their fortunes, if you like. Now, this wasn't a gift from God. This was actually inspired demonically, Acts 16 tells us. And she would follow after Paul and Silas and shout out after them. And for whatever reason, they didn't do anything about it at first. But then it says, Paul got troubled and he spoke to this woman and drove this demon out of her. In other words, she found major new freedom in Christ. How many of you think that's a pretty good thing to do for another human being? Is to care for them that much for this slave girl, that this freedom. But uh, comes her way. But a problem also arrived is because her ability to now tell people's futures and fortunes had also disappeared in her freedom. The devil wasn't helping her do that anymore. Her, the slave owners, who made a lot of money from this ability that they sold, charged people for, now realized that their way of income, their income stream had se severely diminished. So they were really upset. But they couldn't easily explain what had happened. So what they did is they picked on Paul and Silas's ethnicity. There was a racist attack made against them. And they said, these guys are Jews. And they've brought these bad ideas and started this big riot in the city. And that's where we picked up the story. It says the crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. I'd like you to not just read this as a Bible verse, and what I mean by that is sometimes we just skim through it. Imagine being in their shoes. You've just done a good thing for a woman. I mean, one of the kindest things you could possibly do. Internal freedom has come this lady's way. And that same day, they end up being stripped pretty sure close to naked, beaten with rods, 
and flogged. I mean, literally whipped. Blood, pain, agony. And then they're thrown into jail and guarded. So they do a good thing, which leads to a very bad thing. Ultimately, led to a good thing, but they didn't know that at the time that they were getting stretched out and whipped. I wonder for any people tonight, if you felt that same feeling, is that you've done something that you thought was good, and then the results of that turned out to be something that felt very bad. You kind of say, well, God, where were you in all of that? I, I thought we were doing what you wanted us to do. Paul and Silas, well, God, you sent us here. You told us, drive out demons, and now look at all this that happens. And while you and I might not have been literally stripped of clothing, there might be occasions in your life, and maybe for some people right now, you're in a patch where you felt stripped of your dignity or stripped of relationships that you've been holding out for, stripped in health, stripped with regards to finances, feeling stripped with regards to business, work, dreams for the future. Paul and Silas were physically beaten with rods and flogged. But maybe tonight, there's some of us that feel beaten by circumstances outside of our control or things that have just kind of happened. This magistrate ordering this beating, it wasn't like he gave them a fair trial, didn't wait to listen to their stories, just, okay, just, we'll listen to their story later, but for now, just flog them. It was unfair. And then they get stuck inside a jail cell. I mean, the, the crime that they've committed is preaching about Christ and helping people find an amazing new life. And for their efforts, they get stuck inside a jail cell. Hence my question up front is, do you ever feel stuck? Now, this is an extreme example of being physically stuck, but sometimes there's circumstances or it feels like the road narrows and you can't move to the right or left. For various reasons, circumstances just feel like they, we're a bit caught there. We don't have much room to maneuver. Might be some people here tonight that have recently started a new relationship with Christ or come back to him after a little detour. And that's a good thing. You think, well, I did a good thing, but then some things went really badly. And God, if I'm doing this good thing, how come some things are going badly when I've decided to follow you again? It seems a little more difficult than when I was doing just my own thing. And where are you now? And then we come to this verse. It says, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. So what was the one job he was given? Guard them. Make sure they don't escape. Okay? Then we told us, it says, when he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. You know what stocks are, right? So there's Paul, feet outstretched, wooden stocks, and that thing is locked. And on the other side of the jail cell, Silas, feet locked in the stocks. So now when you read this verse, the jailer's given this one job to guard them carefully. Don't let them escape. They're still meant to be there the next morning. That's the idea. He did one thing right, and he did one thing wrong. One thing that guaranteed that they would stay there, and he did another thing that guaranteed that they wouldn't. Did you pick it up from that verse? So what was the thing he did right? Well, he fastened their feet in the stocks. That's a good um, anti-escape mechanism when your feet are tied. The jail obviously didn't trust the bars of the cell for whatever reason. Puts their feet in the stocks. But did you pick up in that verse what the one thing 
the one mistake that he made. It says he put them, plural, in the inner cell, singular. He put them together in the same cell. And that was, as we see, a, a little mistake that he made. Because I've got three big points that I'd like to make tonight. So if you're taking notes, this would be the first one. There is tremendous power in being around faithful people. Tremendous power. And I'm going to unpack this a little bit as we go on. But let me just say this. After I take a sip of water. One of the devil's best weapons against any one of us is isolation. I think if you were to, if you've had faith in Christ for any length of time, if you were to look back on your journey, the times when we have felt the most discouraged is usually the time when we've allowed ourselves to become the most isolated. And weird things start to happen in our brains when we allow ourselves to become isolated. Isn't that right? I think it goes something like this. We must say, for whatever reason, some kind of pain or circumstance, or we, we're just having trouble, we're feeling a bit vulnerable. And so we might, might miss the home group that week. We don't make it to church on Sunday. And the next week, we're not there. And then by week three, we start to think, one of those people, we always, uh, the little narrator in our brain, I don't know about your brain, but my brain sometimes uses this phrase, those people who claim to love Christ and his church so much, nobody even noticed I wasn't there. Nobody phoned me. Now, this is a little catch-22. This is a lose-lose situation about phoning people. Let me tell you why. Is because if you do find somebody after two weeks, they're like, hey, why are you checking up on me? I'm under grace. <laughs> and if you don't find someone after two weeks, it's like, hey, doesn't anybody care? <laughs> let, me, let me say this. The onus is not on those people to call. The onus is on me to stay connected. But the devil, it's like the little narrator saying that, then the devil just whispers, nobody loves you. Everybody hates you. And you start eating worms. And we get a little bit isolated. It's like that coal, that, the little log that just manages to wriggle itself loose of the fire and it just rolls itself out there. Which grows cold first, the log or the fire? The log. And we blame the fire. It's got nothing to do with them, whoever them are. But these feelings of isolation, just these little wedges, these things that come into our hearts. The devil doesn't need to get us to commit major crimes, bank robbery or major fraud or anything if he can just get us feeling isolated and then we become almost completely ineffective for the kingdom of God for what we are meant to do our purpose gets on pause it goes on a little bit of it goes on hold a bit that for me is why our home groups and church meetings and any time of connecting are so important I don't know about you but sometimes I don't feel like going to church service I'm going to be honest these are some of the meetings that I'm preaching at. <laughs> you guys never had that. It's always just so fast. <laughs> Maybe I was speaking to the wrong church. When I mean, you guys come out midweek, well done. Hats off to you. But there's someone, I think, you know what? If I wasn't paid to do this, I'd be on the beach today. I'd just go to the evening service. We've got a morning and an evening service. And then funny thing happens, you, whatever's happened, whatever discouragement, whatever thing, and then you start to sing some of these songs. And quite by accident, your foot starts to tap, and your chin starts to lift internally, 
shoulders are back a bit and you connect with amazing people and you eat some great food. If you eat the food and drink some amazing coffee and, and you drive home and you think, wow, thank you, God. I was just reminded that you're still on the throne and that you're large and in charge and you're still looking after stuff because there's power. We were designed to be around faithful people. We weren't designed to serve them alone. Uh, I've had this verse in my notes for tonight and I see it stuck up in the well, at least the men's bathroom, I don't know about the ladies, but it says this, and let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing. This is a good habit, the writer of Hebrews says. This, we say, well, I don't meet because I'm under law. Well, this isn't, it's a command. Don't give up meeting together because it's good for me. It's like saying to a log, get stuck into the fire, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Now, Here's the deal. This verse says that we encourage one another when we stuck together. Sometimes quite by accident. Encourage basically means to fill with courage. Right? So the mistake that the jailer made is he puts Paul and Silas in the same cell, and somewhere they find courage to sing in the middle of the night. Here's an interesting story that I heard. An experiment was done on monkeys. And I didn't do this experiment. I'm just telling you, I heard about the experiment. So they took these monkeys and put them in individual cages and then shocked them with uh, loud noises and loud lights, uh, bright lights, and wanted to measure the stress of these monkeys. So they measured the cortisol, which is like your body's response in stressful situations, and they took a reading. And then they took two monkeys and put them in the same cage and did exactly the same experiment with two monkeys. And guess what? The levels of cortisol in the monkeys that were together in the same cage was half of what the single monkeys were. They just found courage from being stuck in the same cage with another monkey. That's why I think the Bible says, I'm just using an odd example, encourage one another, get in the same place together. When the loud flashes, the bright lights, the noise, the trouble, the stuckness happens, at least if you're stuck in with a whole lot of other people, you get courage. Why don't you turn to somebody in front behind next to you, just say, thank you for being the monkey. (laughs) 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 You haven't just, by the way, I forgot to check what time I started. So this is the question is what kind of people do we have in our lives? Because those are the kind of places we get courage from. Are we surrounding ourselves with cynicism, with negativity, with people that are constantly seeing the worst in the world and in the country and in the situation? We got people speaking in who are stirring us. I heard an amazing story. Uh, uh, one of the private investigators who very, was very notorious in our area. Long, amazing stories of all the stuff he's done actually around the country. But a a very effective guy because he took no prisoners basically he I met I had coffee with him the other day it was my first time to meet him and I asked him about his faith and he said I want to tell you an amazing story he says I had everything made these millions and then I got sick and ended up in hospital and in hospital I contracted a superbug that started to eat away my arm and I was in hospital for seven months and lost everything I couldn't work, and the bulls were so high. And he said, I reached a point where the doctor said to me, we're going to amputate your arm next week, Thursday. 
and drew the line on his arm where his right arm was going to be amputated, his gun arm, and sent him home and said, if this thing hasn't healed by next week, Thursday, we amputate. And he was so discouraged. And he went home and one of his friends found him and said, you need to come to a home group meeting with me. Guy totally unsaved. Took him along to this home group meeting. They prayed for him, shared Christ with him. He came to faith in Christ and they prayed for his arm. That was Tuesday night. Thursday morning, he said he, he vomited that morning. Now that he was going to the hospital to have his arm chopped off. And he arrives, the doctor takes off the bandage and his arm is 70% healed. Doctor says, we don't need to operate. This thing started to heal all by itself. There was a man who had the courage to say, my buddy, no matter what dark place you find yourself in, you come and hang together with us monkeys. Let's get inside the same cage and share, the faith, share Christ together with him. I think we need to work hard to develop a high five culture, celebrating, encouraging, thanking people. It does something on the inside. Let's be the Ben in other people's lives. Happy to see them. Then it says, this is the second thing I'd like to say. There's power in being with faithful people, but secondly, there's power in praise. Power in praise. It says this, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. You got this picture in your mind? Here's Silas. Feet locked in the stocks. Back sore. Can't even lie down. Aching, blood, pain. How many of you, when you feel any kind of pain and it's midnight, feel like singing hymns <laughs> and praising God? I don't know about you, but when things are going down and I'm feeling really, really stuck, often midnight is the time I have my worst thoughts. Early in the morning, I feel it's just like your body dips off and you just can't see the wood for the trees, just waiting for daylight just to be able to think a little more clearly again. And somehow, they find strength to sing and, and to praise. Now, now, here's the thing is that praise appealed to a higher authority than the Roman magistrates. The magistrates ordered them, stick, stick these guys in jail, and you, Mr. Jailer, don't let them escape. And there's Silas, I'm just thinking, sitting with his feet in the stocks, and maybe Paul's over that side with his feet in the stocks. And Silas, uncomfortable, leaning back, he can't sleep anyway. And he just starts to hum. And over this side of the jail cell, Peter's feeling really uncomfortable, and he's, he's not feeling that, that good. He says, Silas, just keep it down. Just, just trying to sleep and rest as best we can. But Silas knows that he can't keep it down, and he starts to think about what he's singing. He starts to sing out loud, Ma, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And over this side, Paul starts to tap his foot a little bit as much as he can. Because this is the power of being together. Is maybe by myself I wouldn't always sing. But somebody else starts, fills me with courage. I'm just imagining here. I'm not saying this would. I dare not trust the sweetest frame. But holy, lean on Jesus' name. And then together they start to sing. In Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. 
and then pull. All other ground is sinking sand. And then it's middle of the night, so he starts the second verse. When darkness seems to hide his face. Unfailing grace through every dark and stormy gale. My anchor lulls be within the veil. But now the whole jail cells, the whole prison is starting to listen to them, starting to tap their tin mugs in line. On Christ the solid rock I stand. And suddenly they start to remember, this is why we did what we did. This is why we came to Philippi. They're singing and praising. And you see their legs were bound, but their tongues were free. And they used what was free to loose what was stuck, what was bound. And this is an incredible verse. The very next verse, it says, suddenly... There was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaking. At once, all the prison doors flew open. What does the next phrase say? And everyone's chains came loose. This is such a powerful story. Because so often, when I feel stuck, I don't sing. I grumble or mumble. Sometimes just inside. Most times. I try not to grumble too much outwardly. But you can get this grumbly attitude. And Paul and Silas have been uh, flogged. They've been stripped naked. They've been beaten, treated unfairly. Somehow find it to just sing praises to God. They could just as easily have gone the other way and said, you know what? God, after all we've done for you, this is where we end up. Thanks a lot. Paul could have shouted across the corridor to Silas, Silas, I'm done. But says they sang together. They sang together. Now, just in this verse, it says there was this massive earthquake. The whole prison was, sh was shaken. But another miracle happened because it says everyone's chains came loose. The prison shaking didn't mean all the chains came loose necessarily. They could have just as easily died and the whole thing collapsing. But supernaturally, the hand of God hits that prison. It's almost like God starts tapping his feet in time to the worship. The whole prison shakes. The chains fall off every single prisoner. How many prisoners were singing? Correct. How many people's chains came loose? everybody. This is the power in praise, is that it, the impact, the ripple effect always benefits more than just me. That when I'm stuck and I start to just keep my focus, appeal to the authority higher than the circumstances, it benefits everybody around me. All of their chains come loose and everybody is set free. I'm guessing every single prisoner after that night acknowledged whoever those guys talking, whoever Paul and Silas are talking about, that's actually the true God. He's the God that shakes jail cells. He's the God that lets chains come loose. Amazing that the slave girl's chains came loose earlier in the day, her spiritual chains, and every prisoner's physical chains came loose later in the day. There is tremendous power in praise. In fact, the Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6 verse 9, starts off by saying, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. How many of us start off by, Our Father in heaven, please help me, please help me, please help me. The please help me is in the Lord's Prayer, but it's further down. It's a few lines on. The start of it, it's like almost the Father in heaven saying to us, or Jesus telling us that what the Father wants you to do is look to him first. <sighs> our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And suddenly our perspective changes. And when we get down to the line of give us today daily bread, we realize I'm not praying this just out of a selfish, um, self-pitiful thing, but because you are God and you want to provide and you want to help. There is power in being around faithful people. There is tremendous power in praise. 
I, I reckon we should be a singing people. Privately and publicly, we should sing. Can I pick on white people for a little bit? Just for a minute. Let me pick particularly on English white people. I don't know what it is about us in this country, South African English white people, that we feel singing is awkward. It is so powerful. You don't even need to sing in tune for it to be powerful. Although that might be of some benefit to the people around you. But the Bible says, just make a joyful noise. There should be a song in our heart. It should come out. We should be a foot tapping kind of, I'm not talking over optimistic candy floss time, but in the middle of tough times and good times that we've got some kind of song going on the inside that occasionally just has to bubble out. I can't remember if I've told the story here before. But a few years back, just after we got married, my mom ended up in hospital on her deathbed. And she was in ICU for a month. Twice they called us, kind of a false alarm, saying we think she's going and she didn't. And then one morning, early in the morning, about 4.30, got the phone call. She's on her way out. I'm one of five siblings, so we all went there. I was married to Jack. She came with me, and my dad was there. We gather around her bed. We're watching these monitors, and the, all the vitals are just dropping off. And she's slipping away. You know what my dad does? He asks us all to join hands. And he says, guys, I'd like to sing. And then he starts singing when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. And I'm finding it very difficult to sing because I'm crying so much. It's all clogged up. And I think to myself, how is it possible for this man who's losing his wife of all these years to be singing it as well with my soul? And I think it's for this reason is that they had always sung. My dad wasn't a great singer. It was always a song. It's like he, he, his heart was attuned. He just knew that God was in charge and there was nothing more we could do. But that didn't mean God wasn't still in charge. And when sorrows like sea billows roll, or when it's going well, it's still well with my soul. And 12 years later, we got a call to say my dad was on his deathbed. And now the five siblings plus a few extra spouses go along. And I mean, we are grieving, probably, probably, just sad. And somebody says, we should sing. And we sing exactly the same hymn. Because that's what dad and mom taught us to do. Is you praise. On the mountaintops and in the darkest valleys. Because it is well with our souls. And I'd like to suggest that just a few minutes later. When my mom and separately my dad passed away. It's never been better for them. Here on earth we certainly had the grief to process. But they were as good as they were ever going to be. Together with Jesus forever and forever and forever. The final thing, the final point I want to make tonight is that there's not only power in faithful people, being around faithful people, power and praise, but there's tremendous power and purpose 
just in case you misinterpret me tonight, that if I just have coffee with people and sing happy songs, it's all going to be okay. It says this, the very next verse, uh, 27, it says, The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. I mean, you couldn't understand what stress this guy was under. It's like, <laughs> I know what that magistrate does to people. I know what the Romans do to guys who disobey commands. I'm just going to commit suicide right here, right now, knowing that Paul and Silas have got out of here, and that was my only job for tonight. And it says this, but Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we're all here. Can I just pause there for a moment? Let's say that somehow you were preaching the gospel, and there was this girl that you prayed for, and she was spiritually set free miraculously, and then you got flogged and stripped naked, and you were then locked your feet in stocks, and at midnight you were singing to God, and the whole prison cell got shaken with an earthquake, and your chains dropped loose. Let's say that it happened to you. Here's the question. How many of us would still be there five minutes later? I'm just thinking, just my thoughts, God has supplied a miracle. Run, forest. You're free. Why are Paul and Silas still there five minutes later when the jailer wakes up and thinks that the prison's empty? Why is it Paul that speaks and says, don't worry, we are all still here, every single one of us? perhaps it's for this reason, is because they hadn't lost sight of the purpose that they came to Philippi for in the first place. What was the reason they went there? To tell other people about Christ. And it says that the jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of night, midnight, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. Here's the point I'd like to make. Very often our perspective is connected to our pain. We feel pain, our perspective is narrow, we just want to be rid of the pain. Paul and Silas, their perspective is connected to their purpose. The pain in some way has been relieved, there's this earthquake, they've still got the wounds, but their stocks are off, they can go, they could run. But there was something greater than their pain, it was the purpose of why they'd come there is to tell people about Christ, and this man was a person. And this man and his whole household goes from being their jailer to being their host, bathes their wounds, give them a meal, and the entire family that time of night is baptized by Paul and Silas in water as a sign of their faith. When our perspective is connected to our purpose, we can go through the pain. But when our perspective is always connected to pain, we try and go around. Remember what it said about Jesus in Hebrews 12. It says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of God. He, he saw beyond the pain to what his ultimate purpose was. Paul and Silas see beyond the pain of the beating to our purpose is to advance God's kingdom here in Philippi. Sometimes this isn't that easy for us to grasp when it's happening just in our city where we happen to live and work. But we are here, if you like, as missionaries. We are here as Christ's ambassadors, wherever here is. And regardless of the pain that God somehow allows, the bad thing that came after the good thing, if we allow our perspective to be governed by our purpose, through that bad thing, God can bring about other good things. It's quite likely 
that the Philippian jailer and his household were some of the founding members of the church in Philippi. I wonder if when that letter was written, if they were in the church and if they were still there, if Paul, who writes the letter of Philippians, is sitting in jail himself at that time, writes back, I wonder if Paul's not thinking, remember when we started that church, that big earthquake, that Philippian jail, I wonder if it wasn't he thinking about that guy sitting in the chairs of that church. Because he says in, in, uh, in Philippians, there was, you've had partnership in the gospel from the first day up until now. I heard an incredible story this morning, a, a, a 30 minute DVD that I watched of a lady, a Rwandan lady who survived the genocide. It was so challenging. She was one of the Tutsi tribe and the Hutus for those 90, at 100 days was the government really because she says it wasn't everybody. It was government-driven, pre-planned. And her family, father, mother, and brother sent her away to hide at a, man's, a Hutu man's house who was a good man. As she gets there, he opens a bathroom door. The bathroom is four feet by three feet. He adds five more women into that bathroom with her. She is in that bathroom for 90 days. They search the house, the whole house. The only part of the house they don't search is that bathroom. It was this miraculous intervention. In the bathroom, she's praying, God, please don't let them search the house. She faints from fear, knowing that this could be her last day. And for 90 days is in this bathroom. She gets hold of a Bible and she starts to read. It comes from a Catholic background. And she starts to tell how God challenged her over and over and over to forgive. She says for many days she prayed the Lord's Prayer and she just left out that part of Father, for, uh, forgive me as I forgive them that sin against me. And eventually God challenged her and, challenged, and she arrived at a place of being able to forgive. And she ends up going to prison and meeting one of the people that killed her family. She lost her mother, her father, two of her brothers and her grandfather and her grandmother all in one shot. And today travels the world preaching a message of forgiveness and peace and reconciliation. I mean, I cannot think of something worse happening out of something good. She came from this amazing family. Her father's this amazing guy. And then they all get killed. And through the worst of the worst of the worst times, God brings about something that is shining light. That conference that you're speaking at, those DVDs were sent to conferences. 400,000 people around the world are hearing her story just now. Her book became a New York Times best-selling book because she was able, through Christ, to let her perspective be connected to purpose rather than just pain. I wonder, in closing, if Paul's perspective had been connected to his pain, whether we would have any of the New Testament books that he wrote because he had a lot of pain. And somehow he just kept seeing the greater purpose. God's got me in this thing. I wonder if I could ask you to stand together with me, please.